Blessing. Good to see you. Uh, we're going to have a look at the end of chapter 7, which is the end of a section in 1 Corinthians. But before we get into that, who enjoys board games? A few of you, what's some of your favourites? Linky. Monopoly, one of the old favourites. Anything else? Okay. Any fans of Trivial Pursuit? A few. Uh, it used to be a f- one we would play as a family. We played the family version because obviously you had different questions for the adults and the children. Um, I think once the kids learnt out, worked out, actually it was a bit like school and we were trying to teach them stuff through playing games. It wasn't quite so much fun. Uh, they did mention my competitive nature, but I'm not sure that's the real reason. We're not thinking about Trivial Pursuit today. What I've done, um, if you're listening carefully in the reading, Paul covers lots of topics <laughs> in that one section. We have some more about uh, marriage, sex, relationships, but we also have circumcision, slavery, uh, the things of this world. He jumps around a lot. Uh, so... Hopefully what's helpful to you is I've come up with a bit of a twist. We're going to be talking about the pursuit of the trivial, which helps me do a 12-point sermon. <laughs> Hopefully it won't be too long. Paul covers a lot, so there's a lot to get through. Uh, but I think the pursuit of the trivial is a good uh, way of describing how many people are living their lives and a good way of describing some of the things Paul is touching on and lots of similarities with that game. Trivial pursuit, you go around in circles, you're trying to get all the missing pieces just to feel complete. If you miss a piece, it feels really frustrating, and it gives you a chance to show off and show how much better you are than anyone else. So in the last section, last first part of chapter 7, uh, we read that Paul was responding to some questions from the church. He makes it clear they've asked him some questions, probably by letter, And he was responding with some answers. And the main part of the first half of the chapter was sex and relationships. And there's some of that today. But there, as I said, there are a number of other topics. But they're clearly linked. I mean, this section starts with nevertheless, which clearly is a word that links it to what's gone before. Uh, So, in fact, what I'm going to do is go through the section twice. First time, we're going to think about the pursuit of the trivial The second time, we're going to pick up Paul's gospel-centred alternative to living that way. They seem to have asked a question about circumcision, verses 18 and 19. Should Christians be circumcised? Or if they are circumcised, should they become uncircumcised? It's not quite a get my head around how that might work, but the question's there. Uh, And Paul makes it clear it doesn't matter doesn't matter. But what does circumcision represent? Actually, for the Jews, it's a sign of belonging. It's a religious ceremony, but also a mark of their ethnic identity. So for a Jewish man, being circumcised is part of their identity, but also a marker saying, this man is one of us, he's a Jew. So it's about identity and belonging. I think those are things that people throughout history have pursued. We've all, as we get older, we develop a a greater sense of ourselves and we start to form an identity. Who are we? We become increasingly independent of our parents and need to form our own identity. 
but also what communities are we part of? What groups do we belong to? They're questions we all ask. But what does that mean? What does that look like in the world today? I think too often our world confuses identity with image uh, and we're obsessed with the outward appearance, the superficial things that make up image and then are assumed to be someone's identity. And we know it's really easy to go through life and just change the external without ever changing what's on the inside, who we really are. The superficial things like my blue and white check shirt for the young people say no, I am an elder, apparently it's part of our uniform, inadvertently we all wear the same thing, we've just formed a group identity through the superficial things. But those things reduce identity to the trivial, if it's all about what's on the outside. I think our culture too has distorted what it means to belong in a number of ways. We can look at identity politics increasingly having an influence on our lives, uh, but an effort, an ideology that wants to categorise everyone using ever narrower definitions. But the irony is, as they focus on identity, what they're doing is destroying any sense of community and belonging, atomising our society and creating division. And you look at social media, uh, that gives a false sense of belonging, believing you have loads of friends and followers. And yet all the evidence is the current young generation are one of the loneliest there has ever been. And I'm sure you all know we too live in a very individualistic culture where people are shouting, accept me as I am. And then feeling that they belong, but it's superficial. It's not shared on any, it's not based on any shared heritage or agreed values or willingness to act for the good of the community. It's just they're not rejected. So the belonging that many are pursuing in our world has been trivialised to the point of being almost meaningless. So to pursue identity as the things that are external, to pursue belonging in these meaningless ways is to pursue the trivial. It seems, if you look at verses 17, 20, 24... There's a suggestion that there's a level of discontentment within the Corinthian church. That people are striving for more or wondering whether their circumstances should be better. Uh, we know there were divisions in the church and to some degree people were comparing themselves with each other. Maybe a sense that being a Christian should make life better. Or some disagreement about what the Christian life should look like and that left some of them feeling shortchanged. And I'm sure that would make them unhappy and disappointed. Happiness. Uh, I think for most people in the world, in our culture, not around the world, potentially, but in the UK, happiness seems to be the ultimate goal in life. I remember, I used to be a school governor, I remember sitting in a school governor meeting, you think all the things school governors have got to think about, uh, and people talking as if the only thing that really matters is whether the children were happy. It seems to be the ultimate goal for many people. Maybe uh, taking the uh, American Declaration of Independence as a life motto, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And people are making their decisions against 
one standard. Will it make me happy? It's not surprising. We're encouraged to do it all the time. I mean, advertising, when advertising first started, it just explained the features of a product, why you should have it, what it would do for you. Now it promises to make you happy. If you have the latest, newest gadget, your life will be better and you'll be happier. Loads of things are presented to us with promises of of fulfilment and happiness. And we're thinking, or Paul is addressing relationships. Well, you look around our culture today, people make decisions about relationships based on happiness. It seems to be pretty widely accepted if your marriage no longer makes you happy, then get out. Get out, find somebody else. And we're on the brink of being a country with some of the most relaxed divorce laws in the world as a result because we have that attitude. Hopefully I don't need to persuade you that there are some things in life that are important and valuable and worth sticking with even when they're not making you happy. Maybe your own life experience tells you it's impossible to be constantly happy. If you're pursuing happiness as your ultimate goal, it's like being on a treadmill. You're constantly chasing the next thing, always wanting what other people have got, but never really knowing deep, lasting joy. Pursuing happiness as the ultimate thing is to pursue the trivial. Verses 21 and 22, a question clearly come up about whether people should be slaves or not, if they're Christian. And again, Paul, it's insignificant. If you're a slave, stay a slave. If you're not a slave, fine. If you're a slave and you come free, fine. It's not really significant. But what's behind it? Again, it's a question I think about something else, about status. Whether you were free or slave was quite a basic marker of status in the Roman Empire. There were lots of different ways of, lots of different uh, levels of status, I think, but that was quite a critical distinction. And again, we know there were divisions, there were factions within the church, and it's no different from our culture. We still have class structures, there's still plenty of snobbery around, and it's still very easy to look down on those we think are beneath us. So the cultures are different, we might use different criteria to the Corinthians, but the attitudes are still the same. I think for many of us, um, actually social status is given according to educational achievements. And we live in a time when 50% of young people are encouraged to go to university. But even that's not enough. For many, it has to be the right kind of university. It isn't just enough to go. Maybe one of the Russell Group is the right kind that you should be aiming for. And then when you leave university with a degree, hopefully, uh, that might influence where you end up as a job. Obviously, your qualifications will make a difference. So then we assign status to the level of job somebody has. And any job you have determines the level of salary you're going to get and allows you to uh, afford to buy many of the things we consider to be status symbols. You can have a bigger house, newer, bigger, fancier cars. You can have foreign holidays more often. Uh, Having the latest iPhone just becomes a necessity. But it's not all one way. Actually, I find in the UK we don't like to be too posh either. We don't want to be too poor, but we don't like to be too posh. I think 
No matter what your politics are, most of us would not really want to be like Jacob Rees-Mogg. Maybe you wouldn't mind his bank account, apparently he's got a lot of money in the bank, but you wouldn't want to be someone who's so blatant about enjoying their poshness. It's interesting, I think our snobbery goes in both directions. We make fun of people like this. Of course there's nothing wrong with working hard in school, college, university, getting a good education, getting good qualifications. There's nothing wrong about pursuing a professional career and having a successful career. And I think there's nothing wrong with having wealth in and of itself. But if you're striving after those things for the status they afford you, you're pursuing the trivial. As I said, Paul touches on sex and relationships in this section again. Uh, verses 25 to 28 and then another portion in verses 32 to 40. So a lot in the first part of chapter 7 and some more here. The Corinthians were, the best word I can come up with is confused, but that seems a bit of an understatement, really. Uh, should they get married or not? Is it a sin to be having sex even when you're married? Should we be not having sex if we're married? Or should we have sex with whoever we want, whenever we want, to the point where we'll celebrate one of our own sleeping with his father's wife? Can I get divorced? What about widows? Should they remarry or not? They are utterly confused. And we're confused, too, as a culture. And we, too, have uh, conflicting messages from the world around us. We're obsessed with sex, totally immersed in it. Even here as Christians who would think we're not, we're just immersed in it. And if you don't believe me, I'd give you a challenge. For one day only, pay attention to everything you hear and read and see and look out for the implicit and the explicit sexual references. We are absolutely saturated in sex all the time. But we're confused. So yes, those who uh, think we should have absolute sexual freedom and absolute liberty are out there. Sex is just a physical appetite, so why not go for it? Why put any moral boundaries around it? But at the same time, our universities now make it compulsory, some of them, for young men to have sexual consent courses where sexual encounters are turned into transactional arrangements. You have to check you have consent every single step of the way. And we have a hookup culture that's growing and increasing in popularity where people just meet up for sex. Uh, and in many would celebrate and encourage that. Uh, but at the same time, others react in horror at adultery. Some will tell us marriage and relationships are restrictive. You should stay free and enjoy getting together with whoever you want. While others push relationships and marriage as the place to find ultimate fulfilment. We're told marriage is a patriarchal construct to enslave women by some people. And yet we still celebrate marriage and have TV shows like Say Yes to the Dress. Our young people are being taught increasingly explicit material at ever younger ages and being told the only moral boundary is consent. Uh, and by the way, just make sure if you're having sex, you're safe and you're using contraception. The result, uh, unsurprisingly, there is an STI epidemic 
amongst under-16s. And there is a rapidly growing amount of child-on-child sex abuse. But our laws still say under-16s cannot legally give consent, and anyone engaged in sexual activity with someone under-16 is committing statutory rape. What a list of conflicting messages we get from the world about sex and relationships. And like I said about the Corinthian church, it is an understatement to say we're confused. We're obsessed with sex and relationships, even if those messages are mixed. And I am, I would urge you, obviously, subject to whether we're even here or not, be here for when Jackie is here. The message this world offers about sex and relationships is drab, emotionless and soulless. And it leaves people feeling empty. What God has to offer is so much better. But if you're pursuing what the world has to offer in terms of sex and relationships, you are pursuing the trivial. Paul then turns his attention to wealth and possessions, challenging them about putting too much emphasis on the things of this world. Uh, Reading, I wasn't quite sure if he felt they had that problem or whether he was just generally trying to get them to focus on a principle about how futile it is to worry about the things of this world. world. But whichever, Paul is making the point that many people are just focused solely on this world, engrossed with the cares of this world, as if they believe this world is all there is. I think when we look at all those, isn't it striking? Uh, we believe ourselves as a culture to be so much more advanced and enlightened than the people Paul was writing to, yet all these concerns are strikingly similar. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. When you look around at your family, your friends, your colleagues, neighbours, your schoolmates, what do you think most of them believe? They may not be able to articulate it this way, but I guess for most of them, they think this world is all there is. They are, in effect, materialists. They only believe in what they can feel and see and taste and touch and measure. It's no surprise that an alternative meeting of materialists is someone who considers material possessions and physical comforts as more important spiritual matters. If you think this world is all there is, well, you want to get as much of it as you can and enjoy this short life as much as you can. For some, having material possessions is to parade success and status. We want people to know just how much we have. But for others, having stuff is for its own sake. And collectively, in the West, we consume far too much of everything. We all have far too much stuff on the whole. And we were challenged about this as a family. We moved from Bournemouth to Kenilworth almost 11 years ago now. We had a home there, four bedrooms with an attic, uh, and you have all that stuff for that size house. But what we discovered, we've been using the attic to store things rather than decide whether we actually needed them any longer. And so when we then had to move, we realised we had a lot of stuff and we had to get rid of some of it. And being in a house without an attic makes it a little bit easier to be a bit more ruthless. But we still have more than we need. So if you're living as if this world is all there is and forever accumulating more and more stuff, you are 
pursuing the trivial. So we live in a world, I think, that's obsessed with identity, belonging, happiness, status, sex and relationships, wealth and possessions. And it would be easy just to look at the world outside, to criticise and mock how others are living, but for too often, far too often, Christians and churches hold these things as idols too. Paul is writing to a Christian church to challenge them on these things. Do we inadvertently give the message to visitors that they need to be like us if they're going to belong? They need to have the right identity to be part of KCC. How many views do you have about church and what it should be like based on what makes you happy or unhappy? How often does your own happiness influence your decision making? What are your thoughts about status? Looking round, and I think it's reflected of Kenworth, so it's not a massive criticism, but we are generally middle class, professional, well-educated people. But how important is that to us? And I get, I think what gives that away is what do you pray for the children and young people? What are your prayers and deepest desires for them? Are you confused about sex and relationships? Are you single and feel you're missing out because you're not married? Or are you married and justify the flirting with others or looking at porn because it's not really cheating? Are you placing too much confidence in the supposed security of your possessions and bank balance? Are you buying stuff to make yourself happy or to show off to others? We're not immune to these potential idols. For the world it makes sense to pursue them, so why would we mock them? They have no reason to think otherwise. But for us, as the people of God, pursuing the trivial should seem like a waste of time. And it's not what we should be giving our efforts to. We have no reason to play this game, if it really existed. We have far greater things to pursue. Uh, And as Paul has been doing throughout the letter, he, in each of these cases, takes them back to the gospel to correct their thinking. In effect, he's saying, don't pursue the trivial, pursue Jesus. Obedience. It seems a strange um, thing to throw in. His, his answer to the question about circumcision, it doesn't matter what matters is that you obey God's commands. It's kind of, how does that fit with circumcision? It tells me it's nothing. There's no need for a, you're one of us sign. And here we have, in our own congregation, we know we have people from all over the UK, from all over Europe, and in fact from all across the world. And the same applies here. None of us loses our ethnic identity when we become a Christian. And neither do we expect people to become English just because we're a church in England. It's insignificant. And we know the church is made up from all tribes and nations. And when we're all gathered together in eternity, we're made up of people from all tribes and nations. Once we're Christians, we don't lose those things, but they're less important. Some parts of uh, our identity might change slightly. Some groups we no longer belong to. I think what Paul is getting at is that we're part of a new family where belonging is unconditional and the mark of this family is that they obey the commands of God. We've been reconciled with God but we're also reconciled with one another. We are God's family. We should be recognised 
by our obedience to God's commands. That's what sets us apart as God's people, the church. If we are in Christ, let us live as if we are in Christ and obey the things God has commanded. So instead of trying to create our own identity and trying to belong in the way the world tells us to belong, let us just wear the identity we have. We are in Christ. Let us imitate him and imitate those who are following him. Obeying God shows we love God and we love the things God loves. Obeying God honours him and brings him glory. Obeying God shows that we trust him. So one way we can pursue Jesus is to obey the commands of God. Another way is to be content. Verses 17, 20 and 24, pretty much Paul just says, just get on with life where you are. Stop fussing and worrying about what you could have, what you could change, where you could be. Just get on with life. Three times he has to tell them, which makes me think it's pretty important what he feels they really need to hear the most. And even sense a little bit of impatience on Paul's part. Why do you keep asking me these trivial questions? Just get on with being a Christian where you are. God has called you in the circumstances you're in. So becoming a Christian doesn't mean we change our circumstances. We don't become somebody else. We are a new creation, but that's a spiritual reality. The outward aspects of who we are don't need to change. They might change, but they don't need to. God certainly does not promise to change our circumstances. certainly doesn't promise to improve them. That is the evil in false preaching of the health and wealth gospel. The only transformation God expects is that we turn our back on sins and we become more like Jesus. And he's already proved that he doesn't need you to change your circumstances to work in you and through you. In the circumstance you're in, he's already converted you. And his Holy Spirit is already coming to live in your hearts. He doesn't need you to be somewhere different, doing somewhere different to work in you. And even, like I said, it's linked to the previous section we had last week. Uh, Paul just explained what to do if an unbelieving husband or wife stays or leaves a marriage. Even they just says, just... It is what it is. Live as a disciple in that circumstance. You don't need to worry about it. You don't need to change it. Just get on with it. And later he reminds them marriage is for life. And we only are freed from that commitment when our spouse dies. We don't need to change our marital status. And the the guidance is there for marriage, relationships and beyond. Whatever circumstances you are in, that's where God has called you. Be content. Paul himself spoke of his own contentment. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. If you're not content, I'd pull it to you that what you're really saying is you feel you deserve more or you deserve better. 
But that's not what the gospel teaches. The reality is we deserve nothing. Absolutely nothing. But the glorious promise of the gospel is we have more than we can ever possibly deserve or imagine, even in your most extravagant dreams and daydreaming. What God gives you is far greater. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us everything. So another way we can pursue Jesus is to practice being content, whatever our circumstances. And in verses 22 and 23, Paul responds to the question about free or slave. It doesn't matter. Remember who you are in Christ. Your worldly status is not as important as your spiritual status. You are both free and slave, which sounds like a little bit of an oxymoron. How can you be both free and a slave at the same time? Well, the gospel reality is, if you are in Christ, you were bought at a price. You are not your own. You belong to Jesus. He redeemed you. Redemption requires a cost to be paid, and the cost was the cross. The rejection, humiliation, pain, suffering, and separation from God the Father, it was a high cost to pay. So we are slaves, we've been bought, we're not our own. But at the same time, we are in Christ and Jesus has set us free. Free from sin and death, free from striving to be good enough for God, free to love God and obey him, free to sacrificially love others, free to live the best life we can. So we don't need to change our social status. If it does change, fine. If it doesn't, fine. But what we do need to focus on is our new status as people who are in Christ, people who are both free and slaves. So another way to pursue Jesus is to remember who we are in him. The next way is we need to keep an eternal perspective. Verses 29-31, talking about the things of this world, Paul reminds them time is short, the world is passing away. Rather than materialism, being engrossed in the things of this world, we should hold lightly to all that this world has to offer. And Jesus warned us of this himself. Matthew 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let us be engrossed in the things of eternity. Have an eternal perspective. Jesus could return any moment. And when he does this world as we know it will be no more. Whatever treasures you've gathered for yourself will be meaningless. Struck by verse 29, does Paul really mean married people should live as if they're single? That would seem to contradict a lot of the other things he's said. But again, if you read it in the wider context, he's encouraging the readers to have an eternal perspective and not to be too concerned or too focused on worldly affairs. Married people should not make their spouse or their marriage their number one priority, their idol or ultimate thing that replaces God's. Nor should we think mourning is eternal. We're told in Revelation 21.4, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. 
So the mourning we experience will pass, but also will any happiness this world provides. And the material things this world will pass. So don't make this world the focus of your attention and of your heart. Don't let this world push out eternity. This is not our eternal home. The things of God and eternal matters should be the things that capture our hearts. So another way to pursue Jesus is to have an eternal perspective. Verse 35, Paul encourages the Corinthians to be totally devoted to God. Talking in the context of marriage and singleness. So who had, those of you who are married, who had marriage preparation classes of one sort or another? A few people. Uh, did your minister or vicar start with something like this? Let's get started to kick it off. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians seven twenty-eight. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. Not a great start. I'm not sure Paul would make a great marriage counsellor. Um, you might begin to wonder if you're in the right place. Is this the right person to be leading these sessions? And I really hope if you're married, you're not sat there thinking, I wish my counsellor had told me that before I got married. Paul even goes on to say, actually, it's better if you stay single. He doesn't beat around the bush. He's pretty clear on his opinion. But he does say neither is a sin and marriage or singleness are both okay for Christians to choose. And he certainly does not encourage married people to become single. His encouragement is if you are single, practically speaking, for many reasons, it would be better to remain single. And he encourages those who are widowed to remain unmarried. But why? Why? If it's okay for Christians to be married or single, why does he encourage one over the other? Well, he makes it clear, if you're married, you will have split loyalties and divided devotion. If you're married, you're going to have to be concerned about pleasing another person as well as pleasing God. If you've been married for more than a couple of days, uh, you'll know that marriage brings extra struggles and challenges. Living with another sinner makes life a little bit harder and can be a distraction from the things of God. If, if you're blessed with a family, that just multiplies the distractions and difficulty. So I think Paul is just saying, if you're single, you can avoid all those extra demands, all those extra responsibilities, and give more of your focus, energy, love, and time to the things of God. Helpfully, he is realistic too. He doesn't say all Christians should remain single. He knows uh, the reality uh, that we are sexual beings with sexual desires. And so it gives permission almost say, well, if, if you're unable to control your sexual desires, it is better to be married than to fall into sexual sin. And again, it kind of what he's not saying is, well, if you fancy having a bit of sex, get married. It's, if you can't control yourself, if, if the passion burns so deep, then yes, get married. Otherwise, you are exposing yourself to constant temptation to sin. But it's clear some people will be able to control themselves, and self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, control themselves and be able to remain single and not fall into that temptation or sin, enabling them to dedicate themselves to give more of their devotion to God. So I think the challenge for those of us who are married is how do we 
keep those two things in balance. How do we stop our marriages impacting on our devotion to God? How do we maintain a good marriage and a good relationship with God? Because it is more difficult. He then also goes on to say that um, Christians should only marry Christians. And again, in this context of devotion, that seems pretty sensible. If, if being married to another Christian is hard enough and makes it more difficult to be totally devoted to God, how much harder is it going to be if your spouse is not a Christian? If they don't share your faith, how would they ever understand that they can never be the most important person in your life? If they don't share your faith, how on earth would they ever encourage you to pursue Jesus and be totally devoted to God? They are going to be somebody who will make demands of you to test your devotion to God and your loyalties. But it isn't just a spouse who can make demands on our hearts. We can all too easily let many things replace Jesus as the ultimate thing in our lives. But God is concerned with our devotion. When Jesus was asked about the commandments, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So another way for us to pursue Jesus is to be devoted to him and to God. And then finally, Paul, right at the end, verse 40, I too have the Spirit of God. I'm guessing slightly, but kind of to make the statement made me think, they sent him, probably sent him a letter with some questions, so maybe they were saying the person making some claims or teaching some things was saying they had a revelation, they had a message from God about these things. And so if Paul is writing back with answers and maybe contradicting what's been said, he wants to emphasise he too has the same Holy Spirit working in him and through him. But I don't think he's making any claim to have any special knowledge or power that isn't available to any other Christian. Paul has the Holy Spirit living in him. Every Christian also has the Holy Spirit living in them. Paul's already written in the letter, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? He was writing to all the Christians there in Corinth. So I think Paul is pretty clear. He expects every true believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside them. Have you ever meditated on what that really means? Stopped and thought that God is living in you. That the power of God is at work in you and through you. As you go through life, God is with you at all times, guiding you and comforting you. As you read his word and try to make decisions in life, God can give you understanding and insight beyond your own capacity. That God is actively working in you to produce the fruit of the Spirit and to give you gifts through the Spirit. And that by his power, God can use us to bring people into his kingdom. Such a simple statement, I too have the Spirit of God, but what an amazing claim. What an awesome reality for everyone who trusts in Jesus. God dwells in them. And so we know as we pursue Jesus, we're not doing it on our own or in our own strength. It is something we do 
with God. So the final way we pursue Jesus is to let the Holy Spirit work in and through us. So why worry about the things that have limited value when we have access to the infinite, eternal God and everything he has to offer through Jesus? Why would we pursue the trivial when we can pursue Jesus? And as I said, I've described it that way. I hope it fits with the point the passage is trying to make, or the multiple points the passage is trying to make, collates it together. But actually, it's just a shorter way of saying, be a wholehearted disciple of Jesus. That's really what Paul is saying in all of this. Forget about the trivial things of the world. Be a wholehearted disciple of Jesus. Be a disciple who makes disciples. Worship God as family. Tell the gospel. Do good. So friends, stop going around in circles, pursuing the trivial things this world has to offer. Stop believing you'll be happier and fulfilled if you could just fill every gap in your life. Stop trying to impress other people. In Jesus we have all we could ever need. More than we could dare to imagine. A saviour who has done everything for us and an eternal status that will never change. Be a wholehearted disciple. Pursue Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word uh, that has been maintained for us so we can read this letter Paul wrote to those Corinthians in Corinth. Where there's been challenged, Lord, would you help us to respond well to that? to listen to your voice, to let your spirit change us. Lord, would there be, where there has been encouragement, would we hold on to that? But Lord, most of all, I pray for myself and everyone here, when we leave, would we be determined to be more wholehearted in our discipleship, more devoted to you than ever before, seeking to be changed by you, becoming more like Jesus, so we can bring glory to your name in this world. Lord, use us and all our efforts for your kingdom and your glory. Amen.